0: A number of you have asked recently uh, what we're up to, how long we'll be with you, and uh, I, I have given. It's been a while since I've given an update, so just a, a few words on the church plant. My name's Mike. If you're, uh, if I, we've not met, I, I looked across the room and realized that we've met a lot of people. Uh, my wife Mandy and I and our four kids moved here a, a year ago, almost a year ago, to uh, to plant a church on the south side of Indy, and this has been our home church for the um, the full year, and it's been a wonderful place to be, a wonderful blessing. You all have been a great blessing to us as we've transitioned, and um, and thank you. The plan is that we would launch, Lord willing, uh, Sunday worship services this September, and so we're in a, a ramp-up phase now in, in gathering this summer, and if you're interested to know more about what's going on there. There are a few ways that you could do that, and a few ways that you can be involved with the plant, even if you uh, even if you aren't coming with us to, to plant. Uh, we certainly appreciate your prayers and, um, and your support in being present in, in certain things. If you'd like to just know more about what we're doing, I don't want to spend too much time on it right now. There are three ways that you could find out some more. One is that uh, we have a website it's just a temporary website right now. It's Southside PCA, and if you or somebody you know is interested, they can certainly go and check that out. The other thing is that we're having gathering events, and our next kind of bigger gathering event is going to be Sunday May uh, f- or, or Sunday June fifth, I believe, is the Sunday. And um, and that's at a house and with uh, there on the south side in the Center Grove area. And you're welcome to come visit, even if you're not interested in or you don't think you're interested in coming to be a part of our group, just to come and, and to visit and, and meet some people and to, um, to, to see that. The third one is something that uh, I, I, I don't know what you think about this, but it, we've launched a podcast. Now, I know everybody's launching podcasts. But I have the, we have the great privilege of not going at this alone, and Chris McLaughlin, Chris and Erica McLaughlin, are coming alongside with us, he's our assistant pastor, he's just been hired on full-time. They've lived in the Center Grove area for seven years, and he's in the process of coming into the PCA. He has more experience with this but we're telling the story of planting a church kind of in real time. So it's not just talking about what the church is going to be. It's some of that, but it's telling the story of what, what's going on. So it's a way you can follow along with the story and more than what I can share here on the morning or even if you were just listening to a sermon. And I, I know that it's live on Spotify. I think it's going live on the other ones maybe already. And you can just chur- search Church Plant Indie. I think it's the best way to uh, to find that. It's called Church Plant and uh, follow along there feel free to share those uh, that with other people who may be interested as well so with that because I know Caleb already prayed for me but it just helps me get in the rhythm will you will you pray with me before we open the scriptures oh Lord our God and our King also our Savior and our friend We come to you this morning in worship and awe to look at the beauty of the temple, not the temple that was built by Solomon or by any human hands, but the temple that was built by you. And that you have called us into and continue to build up. Will you help us to live into that great call and that great promise today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture's printed in your bulletin there, but I'd encourage you to open your Bible or even a phone or whatever you have because the text that was given to me was an option. It said anything from 1 Kings 6 to 9, and there's a lot in 1 Kings 6 to 9. Even what's printed in the bulletin there is not... um, We're not even going to read the majority of it. In fact, most of it we will not read. But there are some places in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, that I will refer to along the way, so you can follow along. At the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 6, it says simply this, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that the King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been tracking through the history of God redeeming his people. Starting from the beginning, Genesis 1, and now we've come to the time of Solomon, who is the son of David, the pinnacle of kings in Israel. David was righteous, a man after God's own heart. Solomon was prosperous, successful, wise like no one else or no one since other than Jesus himself. To get here, God has made humanity and put them in a garden, a place that was beautiful without sin, without any destruction, without death itself. Through the disbelief of Adam and Eve, the lack of trust in God and His promises and His instruction, they and all of humanity with them fell into sin and God put a A cherubim, two of them, at the gates of that paradise so that humanity could not re-enter. The symbol of the cherubim appears not just once or twice, but multiple times in the temple structure that we'll look at, take a brief tour of today. And the rest of the Bible is talking about God's plan, purpose, promise... To bring humanity back into that perfection. We see humanity's failed efforts in building a tower up to God and God confuses them. We see God then call Abraham and Sarah to leave the place where they lived near that tower and to come into a new land and purposing through them to bring salvation, redemption, restoration to this fallen humanity. A reconciliation of those things that seem irreconcilable. We trace through hundreds of years of history to come to a time when now the descendants of Abraham and Sarah have lived in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years, and God rescues them and brings them out. And we can't understand, even begin to understand, the structure of the temple that Solomon built without understanding the instructions for the tabernacle, the tent that God gave the people of Israel some million plus people that would sit right in the middle, in the midst of their camp as they moved through the wilderness, as they waited to enter the land that God had promised them to give them, as they looked forward to the type of prosperity and the, the, the extent of the land and the, the, the reign of a powerful king that Solomon brought finally, after 480 years. Now, there's some questions about the accuracy of that number and whether it reflects 12 generations, which really is um, probably more like 250 years or so. won't get into the debate about that. It's not really central to the, the discussion. What's important for us to understand is why God saw that it was important for the people to have a temple. Why did Solomon build it? And what in this temple is useful, relevant to us? I mean, are we just doing an interesting archaeology problem, or does does this have relevance for our life today? Kids, <clears throat> three of our kids and me just watched Jurassic Park first time. It's scary. Scarier than I remembered it. But the dinosaurs came to life. They had real life relevance to the people who were there on that island. Seemed like a fascinating tour that turned deadly. The temple is something like a fascinating tour that still has life today even though the remnants of it are long gone. Temple Mount still stands, but you can't find any evidence of the temple itself from what I understand, though historically it's well documented. And yet I want to suggest to us that that the temple still has living relevance to us and it could be deadly... Or it could be fascinating. More than fascinating, it could be life-giving. Jesus, with his disciples, early in the story of John, goes to Jerusalem. It says, "...the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons." and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was not speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture And the word that Jesus had spoken. By the time we get to Jesus' time, the temple's been rebuilt. It was destroyed. It was rebuilt when the people returned to Jerusalem. It was half its glory. It was rebuilt again by King Herod to roughly its full stature, but a different design. And that's the temple that Jesus was looking at with his disciples and entering in and overturning. Now, with the temple, there's this constant dichotomy. You see, the disciples, when they go back to Jerusalem later, are looking at the temple in awe, and Jesus tells them the same thing. He's going to tear it down. And you've got this beauty, and yet you've got this temptation to worship the thing instead of the person, the person of God. It's not the first time we find this dichotomy. Jesus goes in and overturns the tables and yet, it's the same temple that Jesus commends a widow who has no money for giving every last cent she has to. The same rulers take Jesus to the cross and demand his execution as who are running the temple there. Solomon brings Israel into the fullness, or at least the fullest expression. It's the pinnacle of Israelite expression experience. Right after Solomon, the kingdom tears in two. We'll look at that soon. Solomon even has the threads being pulled. Even in this story we read about Solomon building the temple, and then he builds a house for himself. And then he builds a palace, a smaller palace for his wife, who is a princess of Egypt, already marrying foreign wives who end up ultimately being a large part of why Solomon goes astray. He worships other gods. What do we make of Solomon's dichotomy? He's this brilliant, wise king building the things that God has called him to build and yet he's the worst of sinners. He flees from God. Worships other gods. The temple, Solomon themselves... Even the temple itself represents this great dichotomy. Irreconcilable things side by side. That's a rough outline of how I want to explain some of the structure of the temple today. And that is two primary images, pictures that God intends for us to understand from the temple architecture. On the one hand, you have the holiness of God. It's more clear if you go back and look at the structure of the tabernacle and the instructions for the sacrifices, but it's there in the temple as well. The temple imitates the tabernacle. And at the heart of the temple is the holiest of places, the place where the people aren't allowed to go. Even the high priest only goes one time a year. And tradition says that he went in with a rope tied around his waist in case he died Going in in an unworthy manner. Even outside of that central holy of holy places, you have still a holy place that only the priests would enter into. The people wouldn't even go into. And even outside of that, where the people could come into, one of the most imposing structures you'd come to right away, it was seemingly half the size of the temple itself. That's an exaggeration, but it was a gigantic giant altar for the sacrifices that the people gave to bring reconciliation. It was an image to say, God is holy and you are not. It's a thing that the people then, just like we do now, need to be reminded of God's holiness and our unholiness apart, apart from God's intervention. The tour of the temple also, though, points to something else that is seemingly at odds with the holiness of God, and that is God's presence. That God enters into a place and lives with his people. When God put his tabernacle in the wilderness with the people as they camped, he put it right in the middle, and he chose to live in a tent, not in a structure built with permanence. And it's only now that the structure is being built with permanence 480 years later. And the imagery that points us to the presence of God is throughout this building. The instructions call for lampstands to be built. Also in the tabernacle, lampstands to be built, bread, fresh bread to be laid out, wine to be present. All these things were meant to communicate one thing, and that was that somebody was home. We tend to think of the temple, the tabernacle, as being sort of this otherly thing that we couldn't touch. And in the holiness aspect, it's there, but at the same time, God's communicating to His people a presence an intimacy. One of the things that I find most interesting about the Lord's Supper when we come to celebrate, and we will in a little bit, about most churches is that they highlight the otherness of it, the holiness of God, the sanctity of coming into this place in a right sense, but we miss the intimacy, the presence of God. The wine in the tabernacle and in the temple would have been open that the scent could have been smelled. The bread was there, fresh. It was communicating that God was there. You don't, have, you don't have fresh bread in a house that's uninhabited. The images of the temple communicate the holiness and the intimacy of God. But you still have in that temple... And otherness, a separation between those two. A need to have these things brought together. It's pointing constantly. It's pointing constantly to Jesus and the reconciliation that He brings. He is both the temple himself, he says, and yet he is friend of sinners. He eats and drinks in the houses of tax collectors prostitutes. You have both the holiness and the intimacy. When does Jesus get upset? Just last night I was talking with one of uh, our kids about God and anger whether it's appropriate to get angry and whether Jesus ever got angry. Of course, the most famous is the example we find in John 2 and at the end of the other Gospels. By the way, probably Jesus got angry twice in the temple, overturned the tables twice in the temple. Why does he get angry? Does he get angry because people aren't taking the temple serious enough? Maybe that's part of it. Does he get angry because people are selling things in the temple? Maybe that's part of it. But the thing that makes Jesus most angry in this setting is that these people who are selling things and the priests who are running the temple are keeping the poor, the marginalized the outcasts, the sinners from coming in and offering their sacrifices and finding intimacy with God. Jesus gets angry with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees when they are frustrated with Jesus for healing people who come to him with deep hurt and pain, oftentimes deep-seated sin issues in their lives, in places of isolation, alienation, guilt-ridden, hopeless. And that was what the temple was meant to be a place where the people could come in and offer their sacrifices, whatever was appropriate to them. If somebody was rich, it was an oxen that could feed many people after the sacrifice. If they were poor, it was a simple pigeon. There was provision for every person in Israel and even every person who would come in to the place. There was a place even for the Gentiles to come And to enter in and enjoy the presence of God. Psalm eighty-four that we read earlier today. I didn't even know we were reading it. It's one of the most beautiful Psalms in all of Scripture. It says, even the sparrow finds a home. Even the smallest of birds, a, a place where she can make a nest. Probably an illustration to in this great temple. The sparrows would find places to nest around it. You could hear the birds singing. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples and others, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he gives two illustrations. He says, consider the sparrows. Why are you anxious about everything? And yet the sparrows there, anxious about nothing, and God provides for them. And then he points to the flowers, and he says, look at the flowers, even Solomon even Solomon, when all of his splendor, all of his riches, all of his wealth was not dressed in as beautiful clothing as these flowers are. Will not God, who has everything, provide for you in the same way, even more so than he does the flowers? As I was studying for this sermon, one of the things that stood out to me was that I've always pictured the temple as this massive structure that was so impressive, and part of that comes from a single trip that I took to Israel a number of years ago, and you see the temple mount itself. Some of you have been there. The temple mount itself, no pictures can do justice, and it is massive. You remember when Jesus with his disciples was in there teaching, and then the disciples gather together. Thousands of people who come to hear after the resurrection and after Jesus' ascension, they're gathered on the Temple Mount in, in that, uh, that area that, that, uh, that Solomon uh, was, was named after Solomon anyway. Thousands of people fit on that Temple Mount. It's, it's massive, and yet when you come and read the dimensions of this temple that are built... In 1 Kings 6, it says that it's 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Now, a cubit is only about a foot and a half, and that means that the length is only 90 feet long. This is only the main structure. There are some outside structures, but not that much. And even Solomon builds his own palace, which is a little bit bigger, next to it, and some other structures. And so the the building projects do get impressive but I walk the length of the, the building here today and the building here is 120 feet long. The structure that we're standing in right now is, is probably 25 feet high and so the temple maybe was twice as high as this. In, in other words, the building itself was not that impressive when you compare it to the ancient world structures like the pyramids of Giza. Now as you go into it, you find a beauty of stone that was cut perfectly before it even came. Wood overlaid with gold. Images of various things, but the size wasn't the impressive part. The labor and the artisan work was surely impressive, and that's probably some of what Jesus' disciples look back on, but even that was a separate temple. It was a different temple. What was most impressive about this place was that it was the place where God communicated to his people that I am dwelling with you. In fact, if you look through the text, and I can't go through all the examples, and you look at the word that's used, it's not even called a temple that often. And the word that's translated temple is probably more accurately translated as palace. The thing, the word that's used to describe this structure more than anything else is a house. It's God's house that he was building to be in the presence of the people. David wasn't allowed to build it because he was still at war. By this time, peace had come and God said, It's time to build a house. Not because God dwells in houses. Multiple times throughout Scripture, you see, God does not dwell in houses. The temple cannot contain God, and yet God communicates to us that he dwells with us to the point that as we get to the time of Jesus, Jesus says to us, I am the temple. More than that, I am the cornerstone of the temple, and you, as believers in Jesus, are the living stones being built up into the dwelling place of God. When Jesus is crucified, and his final words are cried out, and he finally dies, what happens in the temple, the curtain that hangs to separate the holiest of holies from the holy place is torn in two miraculously, communicating that those irreconcilable things, the holiness of God and the presence of God, the forgiveness of God, have been accomplished with a permanence. What's the difference between the tabernacle, the tent, and the temple It's the permanence of the structure. But even the temple is torn down. It's not permanent. It's still pointing us to the work that Jesus does on the cross to bring together the irreconcilable so that we can be the dwelling place of God and God dwells with us. Now what does that mean for us today as God's, temple? Are we supposed to go and build big buildings? I found it ironic that Roger has kind of all worked out in the time or signed this text to me because I, like him, we don't have a desire to build a church building. In fact, I, I'm okay with it if it happens as part of a church plant, but maintaining a building is one of the most distracting things for the work of the church that I've ever seen, you can find all kinds of accounts of building projects that get accomplished and then everybody gets lazy in the church. We've arrived. We can settle down. We don't have to do anything else. Those who would look to this type of passage to say, we're building this church for the glory of God, like Solomon built the temple, miss the point of the passage entirely. I said recently to some friends, two things amaze me more than anything else, kind of trying to follow in the line of Solomon wisdom. one, One is that the structure of Little League baseball holds together if anybody if you played organized sports, that, that you could have so many different people in there arguing about what to do, and yet Little League continues to be this amazing organization in a similar way, maybe even more miraculous than that, is that Jesus has continued to build his temple, the church, hold his church together over 2,000 years, when the stones he has to work with are you and me. It describes the process of building the temple. They did all of the construction out in the quarry so that no hammers and nails were heard on the temple site. It had an appearance of ease, of almost perfection as the construction was going on. But the true process of building the temple involved the work at the quarry that was noisy. The true process of Jesus building his church involves the hard work of carving us out, smoothing the edges, forming us, making us into the people of God that work together to continue to be a dwelling place of God. Solomon in his wisdom in Proverbs says, the manger's clean when the barn has no ox in it. The work of building Jesus' temple, which is the church, is messy because people are present. The beauty of the temple is not in its ease and seeming perfection. The beauty of the temple is that God is at work to do something that you and I could never accomplish and neither could Solomon. The beauty of the gospel, the assurance of this passage is that God is doing something that we are incapable of doing. But God continues to do it and even uses us as a part of the process to accomplish that purpose. The beauty that God wants us to see in the building of the temple and in the promises fulfilled in this passage is this. If you look with me at the last next section of 1 Kings 6 concerning this house verse 11 concerning this house that you are building if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them then I will establish my word with you which I spoke to David your father and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Imagine for a second hearing those words if you're Solomon. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments, walk in them, then, then I will establish my word with you. God had promised David that your son or your descendant, your offspring would be the king who would bring all of this. And Solomon hears that. Imagine the weight on Solomon, the responsibility. If you would keep all of these things. Is that a weight that you feel some of the time in your life, that God in his scripture is saying, if you will follow all of my commandments, if you will do everything I command, then everything's going to go well for you and for your family and for your church. I think most of us do feel that weight. I think Solomon felt that weight. It's fascinating, when you come to chapter 8, there's a whole section on forgiveness that I had just read over in the past that's interesting. I commend it for reading and finding forgiveness in this temple. But here's the solution that God offers to the irreconcilable differences, to the dichotomies of life. And is it Solomon, any of the other sons of David or even grandchildren or descendants, only one can truly fulfill this call, this covenant, and that is Jesus himself who does exactly that on our behalf. It's only Jesus who can hear these words and not be overwhelmed by them concerning this house that you are building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. At the end of the book of Galatians, Paul calls the church the Israel of God because Jesus has called us his Israel and has fulfilled this role so that those commandments that he's given us lose their weight, lose their power to call us guilty and become life-giving. Walking in in God's commandments, then become refreshing because we know that when we fail, we can get up again and continue on because Jesus is the King who has fulfilled these promises and is building up his temple even today and will continue to do it throughout history. Let's pray. Jesus, will you help us to live into this promise fulfilled? that you have and do keep all of these commandments so that we can follow and enter into your kingdom. Father, will you strengthen us and encourage our spirits knowing that we are living stones, your temple, which you will not fail to complete and continuing to shape us individually and your church as a whole. We thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When the people gathered for festivals at the temple three times a year, at the end of the festival, all kinds of sacrifices were offered. At the end of the festival, there was one sacrifice that everybody got to have a part of. They sat down and they had a meal together. It was the peace offering. The sin had been atoned for, and God was saying, I am here with your people. I have called you, you may sit intimately with me me. Jesus took that image. The Passover was one of the peace offering. He took that image and he transformed it saying no longer is there any meat involved because he is the only sacrifice required but continue to eat bread and wine as a symbol not just of his presence but of his love and his faithfulness to you. Jesus is with us when we eat this Meal, this bread and this, and drink this wine. I usually have bread and wine with me. I don't know this routine. This is the first time I've led communion with the church here. Jesus explained to his disciples on the night when he was betrayed This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me and he took a cup in the same way he gave it to the disciples and he said this is the blood of my covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins for as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine you shall forth my death more than that everything of Jesus who he is and what he did until he comes again When we take communion, we are testifying to the world. We are bearing witness to the world. We believe that this is true, and we are hanging our life on this reality, this truth. If you're here exploring the Christian faith and wondering, is this real? Probably more questions you have, and there are answers in the Scriptures and in the history of God's working with His people. So all of your questions, don't feel like you have to take it. In fact, don't take it. Don't bear false witness. God desires a pure heart, a contrite heart. We come to this and find the forgiveness that the people of Israel came, not knowing the fullness of Christ's sacrifice. They didn't know it, but we know it. Find restoration, hope, strength for your souls. As you're ready, stand and come and uh, take the uh, bread and the wine from the tables in the back and then hold on to both of them and we'll eat and drink together as a symbol of the unity Jesus is working in his church to make us one.